If you have a Bible, go ahead and flip with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We are in a sermon series, it's about eight weeks long, where we're considering the mission of God. It's called Advance, that God is advancing his kingdom and his gospel and his work here on earth, and we get to partner with him in that. We get to see gospel advance. First Corinthians chapter nine, and as always at Story Church, we believe the word is from God himself, and we wanna stand to honor him in reverence that he has given us his word. So stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're gonna be in verses 19 through 26. The Apostle Paul writes this to the church at Corinth. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being uh, myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, and I do not box as one beating the air. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and grab a seat. Today's sermon in our advanced series is called Attitudes and Actions. Attitudes and Actions. I'm going to pop this back because I cannot see over this. Sorry, Sean. Attitudes and action. Now, uh, I played exactly one season of soccer in my illustrious career. It was in seventh grade at Vineyard Junior High School. Now, I, I, I did not understand soccer at all. So every time the ball just so happened to make its way to me, I kicked the ball as hard as humanly possible, which meant that ball went one of two places, out of bounds or to the other team. I had zero touch, zero finesse, zero control. And so uh, I had to, you know, pin a letter in the daily bulletin announcing my retirement after the end of that one season. Now, because of my illustrious uh, playing career and my pedigree, I believed myself to be immensely qualified to coach Peyton's ASO soccer team last season. So eight, eight and under girls, and it was fabulous. And I can now, before you, church, officially retire in my youth sports coaching career. I am no longer going to be a youth sports coach. There's a lot of reasons why I'm not gonna coach youth sports, but the main reason is I love to win. I love winning. Now, my desire to win and the ethos of youth sports these days do not work together. This resulted in me getting at least two formal talking tos from the ASO brass. Let me tell you the story on that. The first one happened after a game during which our team, the Bengals, blew out the other team nine to one. Now, the first problem with that is that you're not supposed to keep score, but I knew the score. And at the end of the game, you know, you get in your little huddle and you, you know, two, four, six, eight, who do we appreciate? The Golden Girls or whoever we played that day and you send them through the, the player handshake line, we had multiple of our little eight-year-old girls decide to tell the other team what the final score was as they walked through the line. 
including one of them named Peyton. And I got busted on that one. If you don't know, Peyton's my daughter. The second encounter happened during the fourth quarter of a recent game. We were down in that game two to one, and we had a great season going, so I didn't want to blow it. So what I did was, going into the fourth quarter, my coach, Zach, and I, that we, we coached together, we decided to pull everyone off of defense and put everyone on offense so we can just attack the goal. Like, shots on goal was the, the goal in, in that game. And uh, apparently, after the game, a parent pulled me aside and said, you're breaking the unwritten rules of soccer. You are not supposed to pull someone off defense and put them on offense, to which I replied, apparently that rule is bad because we tied the game. And uh, that resulted in an email from ASO as well. So I am formally retired from coaching ASO. Now, if you think my desire to win is bad, you will hate the Apostle Paul. In those five verses that I just read to you, seven verses that I just read to you, the Apostle Paul mentioned on five different occasions that he has an aim in his Christian ministry. What is it? To win more souls to Jesus. Five times Paul says, I want to win. I want to win. I want to win. I'm not aimlessly doing my ministry and living on Christian mission. I have a goal in what I'm doing, and I want to see more and more people come to follow Jesus Christ. So he had a goal in what he was doing, and you can turn on your Charlie Sheen voice and say, winning. You guys don't remember that? Was that like, I'm aged out, I guess. That was like 10 years ago. I thought that'd be funny. So (laughs) winning. Let me just be a little bit clear up front. Katie is totally embarrassed by me right now. Let me be clear up front. When we have this desire to win, when we are on Christian mission, we wanna see people drawn to Jesus and saved by Jesus. I'm not saying be overly competitive. I'm not saying be vicious. Don't be a turd. But Christians are indeed zealous and ambitious and focused on a goal. And that goal is to see more and more people come to follow Jesus Christ. And what we're gonna talk about today is we're gonna look at the life and the ministry of Paul and consider what did Paul do in order to win more to Jesus and how can we have the same attitudes and actions that the Apostle Paul is giving us. So here's the main point right out of the gates. We do whatever it takes short of sin to reach everyone for Jesus. Let me say that again. We do whatever it takes short of sin to reach everyone for Jesus. So what I'm gonna do today, just two Things. I'm going to explain the passage that I just read a minute ago, and then I'm going to pull out application for us here and now, explanation and application. So let me spend a bit of time explaining what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So the context, the larger context, the book of 1 Corinthians is absolutely wild. There are some perverse things going on in the life of the church at Corinth, and Paul hears what's going on, and with a righteous indignation that he, he hates the sin he's hearing of, he writes writes this letter to be read aloud to the congregation. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, Paul is responding to a particular uproar that's happening in the life of the church. So basically, here's what's going on. 
In Corinth, there was a bunch of pagan temples, and in those pagan temples, the, the, the pagans would do animal sacrifices. So they would turn their temples into slaughterhouses, and then their slaughterhouses would turn into butcher shops, and then their butcher shops would turn into marketplaces. And the Christians at the church at Corinth were going into the pagan temples and buying the meat that was sacrificed on pagan altars, and they were doing it because generally speaking, that meat was at a lower cost than they can get in the marketplace. Well, as you can imagine, when God saves a multiplicity of people to his church, there's that word again, when he brings a bunch of people to himself, he is surely in Corinth bringing some people who were saved out of those pagan temples and they were now a part of the church. There were Jews that became Christians that were a part of the church and this led to a potential disaster with different backgrounds and different norms and different worldviews and different upbringings, this led led to a great potential for division in the life of the church. Because those Gentile Christians who were saved out of the pagan temples still had family and friends back there. And they would regularly go back to the pagan temples and they would dine with their friends and family right there in the temple. And as you can imagine, the Jewish Christians were absolutely appalled by this. And they viewed this as heresy and they viewed this as idolatry and they viewed this as blasphemy. And they were condemning, the Jewish Christians were condemning their Gentile brothers and sisters for what they were doing. And it was tearing the church apart. And Paul was heartbroken and angry by this. So he addresses it in the letter. And leading up to the passage I read, Paul basically says four different things to the Christians in Corinth. He says, number one, I urge you not to eat in the pagan temples. This, is, this has potential to be idolatry. In other words, Paul is saying to the Gentile Christians, don't mess with fire. Don't get as close to the flame as you can without touching it because surely you're gonna get burned. I urge you not to eat in the temple. Number two, Paul writes to them and he says, it's okay if you go into the temple, buy the meat and you take it home and cook it there. Paul normalizes that and says, that's okay. Number three, Paul says to them, if you're buying and eating meat from the pagan temples and it causes a weaker brother or sister in Christ to stumble, then don't do it. If your actions of buying this meat causes another Christian to stumble, I refuse you to participate in that. Why? Because the spiritual edification of your brothers and sisters is greater than your own physical nourishment. And then finally, Paul says, if anything hinders the advance of the gospel to those pagans, stop doing it. Do everything you can to see those pagans in those temples drawn to Jesus. And your eating in their temples could potentially say, this is okay and everything goes. So I'm sitting there reading that. I'm saying real clear, Paul, thanks for helping us out there. But this is what Paul is talking. He's talking about the fact that when we're on mission for Jesus, we are told we are going to go up against the gates of hell, right? We're going to be in the world, but not of the world. And what that requires of us is that we become like our savior Jesus and we're the friend of sinners. And here's what happens when you're the friend of sinners. You're surrounded by sinners, and just like Jesus was accused of being a sinner by the legalistic Pharisees, we too, as we participate in the mission, we are gonna be called sinners by legalist and fundamental Christians that see our behavior, see our identification with sinners and say, man, that's wrong. But Paul is saying, as you live on mission, there's a gray area. It's not always cut and dry. It's not always easy. 
And so let me just share with you some, some operating system that, that Katie and I try to use when we consider our behavior as we live on mission with others. Jonathan Lehman, a pastor in Washington, D.C., when talking about Christian ethics, says two things. Number one, I'm not gonna do things that God expressly forbids me to do. In other words, I'm not gonna go commit adultery at a swinging party to reach the swingers. God expressly forbids me to do that. I won't do that. That's not funny. People do that in, in the name of this verse. I won't do things that God expressly forbids me to do. Number two, I won't stop doing things that God expressly commands me to do. This is why the underground church in China and other places is exploding because the government is telling them, don't read your Bibles, don't pray, don't gather, don't fellowship, don't take communion, don't do baptisms. And they're saying, I don't care what you tell me to do. God has said, I must meet and, and gather with my fellow Christians. We're gonna do that. And they do that and the church is exploding. So Paul is basically advocating for that to these Gentile and Jewish Christians. He's saying to them, hey, don't do things that God says not to do, but also don't stop doing things that God says you should do. And then Paul, because he understands this can be confusing, in the verses I just read today, he begins to expand upon and show them this is what it looks like. Paul begins in verse 19. Look at it again with me. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Paul begins by giving the Christians at Corinth a, a paradox, right? How, Paul, can you be free and a slave to all? Martin Luther explains it like this. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. These two seem to contradict each other, but both are Paul's own statements who says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. And in Romans 13, 8, owe no one anything except to love one another. Love by its very nature is ready to serve and be subject to him who loves. In other words, when Paul is saying, I am free from all, he is saying, Jesus alone is my master. Jesus alone is my king and my Lord. I am not subject to any earthly rulers. Jesus reigns supreme over all of them. But just like my savior Jesus served and bowed down and loved others, I am like him. I give my life away as a service to others because love compels me. So then Paul normalizes this and says in verse 20, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though myself not being under the law, that I might win those under the law. Paul is saying to them, even though Jesus saved me and Jesus' righteousness clothes me, when I get around my Jewish kin, I obey the Old Testament law. I don't have to because Jesus' blood covers me, but I do it because love compels me and, and I want to hear, get a hearing for the gospel from those Jews. I don't want to break relationship with them because I need them desperately to hear the gospel. And then he keeps going. Look at verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those under or outside the law. So he says, with the, when I'm with the Gentiles, I don't obey those same laws I do with the Jews. 
Why? Because I want to gain a hearing of the gospel from the Gentiles. I don't want them to feel like they have to observe Jewish customs in order to be loved by me. So I don't observe Jewish customs because I want to show them just how much I love them. So let me try and say this clearly. When Paul was with the Jews, he didn't eat pork. But when he was with the Gentiles, man, he had that sweet, sweet bacon all the time. So you, you may not know this, but I've, I've spent quite a, a bit of time in Cambodia. And on one of my last trips I went to Cambodia, I was leading a team of people out there. And we went to one of the most rural villages you could find uh, in northwestern Cambodia. As a matter of fact, it, it was told to us that we were the first group of, of white people to be in this particular tribe, amongst this particular tribe, which was probably true because when I got there, they saw hair on my forearms and freckles, and they were grabbing this pale skin, man. They were baffled by what was going on there. Now, in Cambodia, when you have visitors, you get out of your house and you let your visitors sleep in your home. You are called, because honor compels you, to give away your very best to your visitors. So as we're arriving to the village, the host home, sure enough, they've, they've got out of the house, and then something happened. We, we were, when we showed up, there was a dog there to greet us, and we said hi to the dog, and then we went inside, and we began to settle into the house that we'd be staying. A couple hours later, it was dinner time, and the dog was not barking anymore because Lassie was on the table. <gasps> right? And of course, yeah, you're picking up what I'm putting down. Of course, I was with a group of people, and when they put two and two together, some of the people began to react violently to what was going on. And it led to this potential division around the table where these Cambodians were highly offended by our behavior. They had given away their very best to us, their home and their food that we might eat and enjoy and feel welcomed in their presence. And they were deeply offended by the behavior of the team I was leading. So I pulled them aside and I said, hey guys, I don't want to eat it either. But we want to hear, we want these people to hear the gospel from us and not be offended by us. So we're going to get back in there and we're going to eat it. And I did. And they did. And we built a great relationship and now there's a church there in that town. We do whatever it takes short of sin to get a hearing of the gospel. This is what Paul is saying when he's with the Jews and with his Gentiles. He lets love constrain his behavior, not some outside rule of law. You see, he, he uses law on repeat in this text. And, and just to kind of orient you to this, there's three types of law in the Old Testament. There's the civil law. The civil law basically governed day-to-day -day life. How would you be judged? What are penalties for your crime? How are you to act in the town square? That was the civil law. Then there's the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law is like the cleanliness laws. How do I clean myself up before I eat? How do I clean myself up before I enter into the temple and, and go to a sacrifice to get into the presence of God? And then there's the moral law. The moral law is basically the Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal. Now, when Jesus comes on the scene, the New Testament tells us that he fulfills the law. Now, what does that mean? What that means is when you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus, you, you, you say, Jesus, my faith is in you. You are fully, freely, forever forgiven of your sins. And not only that, but Jesus' very righteousness clothes you. Jesus' perfect law abiding now becomes your very resume. So what you don't have to do is worry about Jewish civil law. Okay? What you don't have to worry about is obeying Jewish ceremonial law, which is why we eat shellfish and we eat pork and we wear clothes of mixed fabric because Jesus fully fulfilled the law for us. But the moral law, 
Jesus comes and he amplifies it for us. In Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you are guilty of adultery. He says, if you have lied against someone, you have murdered them in your heart. The moral law still constrains Christians because God says, be holy as I am holy, which is why Paul mentions the law of Christ in the text. He says the law of Christ is basically this governing law that love governs everything I do. Love of God and love of others. And if I am worried about loving God, then I'm going to be holy. I'm going to honor him. I'm going to uphold his name and loving others. If that constrains me, then I'm going to lay my life out in service of others that they may hear the gospel. So this is what Paul's talking about between the Jews and the Gentiles. And then he goes on and he says in verse 22, to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. Paul turns it up another notch and he talks about weak. Now, when he's talking about the weak people in the church at Corinth, he is not talking about their ability to lift weights. Paul is talking about the fact that every society has dividing lines. Okay, every society, including this society in Corinth. Some societies, the dividing lines are racial. Some societies, it's educational or intellectual. Some societies, it's economic status or familial status. And Paul is saying here at Corinth, there are some of you that see yourselves as strong because you're a part of the right political party, right race, you have enough money and enough education, and you cast other Christians out and you tell them, you're weak, go sit outside because you're different than me. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. In the gospel, Jesus came for the weak. Jesus came for the marginalized and the oppressed and those who were pushed out on the margins. Jesus did not come for the well. He came for the sick. Jesus came not for the righteous. He came for the sinner. So Paul says, hey, all of you that are standing up there saying you're strong and everyone else is weak. Well, guess what? I'm siding with the weak because that's what Jesus has done with me. The law, the love of Christ constrains him. And then Paul finishes the passage by using some athletic imagery, which is appropriate because Corinth would be kind of the starting place of what we now call the Olympic Games. And he says, hey, there was a runner and a runner does everything he can to win the race. And a boxer does everything he can to win his match. So what does this mean? In the training stages, the runner eats well and sleeps well and rests well and, and he's not acting a fool. And the boxer in the same way is exercising and he's practicing. He would not go into a boxing match without some sparring matches leading up to it. And then he says, when the day of the race comes or the day of the match comes, you're not going to see a marathon runner show up with a 40 pound rucksack to go run that marathon. They shed everything that becomes a distraction to winning the race. You're not going to see a boxer walk into the ring with a blindfold because they won't be able to see. They'll be aimlessly punching at the air, is what Paul says. So a boxer takes the blindfold off for the boxing match. Why do they do this? They want to win. They want to get that wreath. And in the same way, Paul says, I do everything. I remove every distraction, every obstacle, everything that can hold me back and hold others back from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, this text is communicating to us, we do whatever it takes short of sin to reach everyone for Jesus. That's what Paul is saying in this text. And that's what I want us to do 
in our mission here in Rancho. So with that, I wanna transition now into some application for us. Here's how this is gonna work. From that text, I wanna draw out four or five things for us to consider an application point, and then what does that application point make us do in our attitudes and in our actions? So that might sound a little bit confusing, but you'll get it as we get there. First, first application here, our mission trumps our comfort. Our mission trumps our comfort. Now, you, you know this intuitively, but just to state the obvious, rarely in life is, is something that, does something come to you that is both comfortable and worth it. Rarely in life is something both comfortable and worth it. I want you to think for a second about some of your best friendships you've ever had. When things inevitably get rough in those friendships, right? Because if it's a real friendship, you're gonna have tension, you're gonna argue, you're gonna fight, you're gonna disagree. But when those disagreements come in those friendships, did you tuck tail and run or did you press in and work through the uncomfortable nature of conflict resolution? Did you do that or did you run? You probably pressed in. Why did you press in? Because you knew preserving the relationship was worth going through the hard stuff. Preserving the friendship was worth walking through the hard work of walking through conflict resolution which is why candor is one of the key components to healthy friendships, because truth-telling is a way to preserve and flourish within real relationships. Now, when considering the mission of God, the mission of seeing souls one to Jesus is absolutely worth trumping our own comfort, laying our comfort aside to see more souls drawn to Jesus. That's what we're doing on our mission. Why do we do that then? Because it's worth it. It is absolutely worth it to see more people follow Jesus. Now, you know what I'd like? You know what's comfortable for me? Um, it might surprise you, but those of you who are close to me probably know this. Um, I'm a lot more introverted than I appear to be, right? My, my presence here on stage probably says I'm not. I just get aggressive up here because it's safe. Um, I'm a lot more introverted than, than you, would, you would believe. So I love books. I love quiet, and I love turning the radio off the second I get in the car with my family. I turn, that, I turn Katie's van on, and it's like blasting music. I'm like, oh, turn that off. And I do. And the kids are like, turn it back on. Nope. And, and so when I consider my home, my natural bent by how God wired me is to see my home as purely a sanctuary. Man, it's my escape, it's my refuge, it's the place where we get to just kind of protect for just us. But when God generously gave us our home, he didn't give it to us for it to be a sanctuary only. He gave us our home for it to be a gospel outpost in our city that we might draw more people to Jesus by using the home that doesn't belong to us anyways. It belongs to him. It's his home and he entrusted it to us and he has commanded us use that home to see more people drawn to Jesus, which is why our doors are always open. People are filing in and out at all hours of the day and it's hard for me. I'm gonna be honest with you, it's exhausting for me. It's hard for me to get in that gear and then it's hard for me to stay in that gear. It's really easy for Katie and the kids, man. They love it. They're much more extroverted than I am, uh, which is why we have to kind of wrestle through what we're doing here. That's just my example. For some of us, it might be money. We don't use our money to build a lavish and a comfortable lifestyle. We, we use it to advance the mission, right? 
And we use oftentimes, friends, our money in order to build a comfortable and secluded lifestyle for ourselves. But God says, hey, the mission is more important than your comfort. So lay your money down to see the mission go forward. You can apply it to whatever, your belongings, your jobs, your friends, whatever it might be. God has entrusted that to you, not so that you can build a lifestyle of comfort, but so that you can win souls for Jesus. Now, let me just do a caveat here. This isn't an all or nothing, okay? I'm not saying go sell everything and live as a monk on the corner of Haven and Foothill. There's a constant tension here that Paul is drawing us into where he's saying, hey, you just need to consider there's a means and an end in life. Your money is a means to an end. Your home is a means to an end. Your relationships are a means to an end. And what is that end? How you answer that question is really important. If the end is you, you're walking in idolatry. You are walking in self-worship. If the end is the glory of God, then it's gonna lead us on mission. And I wanna remind you, what's underneath this idea of comfort anyways? Self-preservation. Comfort is always about self-preservation. You want comfort because comfort gives you the illusion of a secure life. But friends, it's just an illusion. Those who live in castles with the most money in this world, sin and brokenness and disease haunt them too. Comfort is a facade. And let me remind you, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you are secure and preserved now and forevermore. You don't need to comfort yourself. The God of all comfort does it for you. Now, you're saying, this is hard, putting down my own comfort, and it is. But I wanna give you an example of how Paul did this. Paul's illustration in his own ministry for how he applied 1 Corinthians 9 was having Timothy, his young travel companion, circumcised. So for Jews, being circumcised was the thing that you did to show respect to your heritage, to honor your religion, to honor your ancestors. Well, Timothy had a Jewish mom and a Gentile dad. And because of that, Timothy was never circumcised. But as he got older and as he got saved and he went on mission with Paul, Paul and Timothy were going into Jewish synagogues trying to preach the gospel but the Jews automatically disregarded young Timothy. Why? Because he was disrespecting his heritage, he hated his religion, and he hated his ancestors. His lack of circumcision proved it. So Paul says this, according to the gospel, Timothy doesn't need to be circumcised. He doesn't have to be. His heart has been circumcised is what Galatians says. He is absolutely saved by the blood of Jesus alone. Circumcision cannot save anyone but... In order to gain a hearing for the gospel, Paul had Timothy, a grown man, get circumcised. Gives a whole new meaning to having some skin in the game. Am I right? I battled that so hard and I just went for it. Our mission trumps our comfort. The mission of Paul and Timothy uh, trumped the comfort of Timothy. So our first attitude here on mission, self-denial. Self-denial. Welcome to Story Church, if you're new. (laughs) Next application point for us here. Our mission trumps our preferences 
Our mission trumps our preferences. Okay, so in this scenario, we've got the Jews who would never eat the, the meat from the pagan temples, and then we've got the Gentiles who grew up eating nothing but that. Who's right? I love knowing when someone's right and someone's wrong because there's clarity there. Paul, who's right? Are the Jews right or are the Gentiles right? And Paul basically says, everyone and no one. What do you mean, Paul? Everyone's right and no one's right. What Paul means by that is when you are governed by the love of Christ, the law of Christ, your Jewish norm of not eating that meat dies in the name of love. And your Gentile norm of eating that meat dies in the name of love. Essentially what Paul is saying, unnecessary matters can tend to alienate us one from another and from the people we're trying to meet. And we must die to those unnecessary matters. If they're not gospel issues, they are open-handed and we, for the sake of others, die to our own worldviews, die to our own norms, die to our own upbringings, die to our own backgrounds. Why? Because we want others to hear the gospel and get saved by Jesus. That's why our mission trumps our preferences. Okay, again, I'll just put my, my, my life on example, mainly because I'm just a really fallen sinner. Needs Jesus. Do you know who I want to hang out with? I want to hang out with people who like sports. I love sports. I want to hang out with people who are really self-disciplined and work really hard because I see myself as someone who's like that. I want to hang out with people who have strong opinions and can offend or defend them strongly. <laughs> they offend with them mainly because that's how I am. That's really easy for me to spend time with people who are like that. Do you, do you know who else it's easy for us to spend time with? People who are from 25 to 40, are married, have a couple of kids, have a home, and, and just like enjoy days at the park because that's our life stage. And I don't despise it. I love where God has me, bloom where you're planted, right? But if I let my preferences, who I wanna hang out with and who it's easy for me to hang out with govern my life, then I'm not gonna win more souls to Jesus. My next door neighbor, Jesse, is 72 years old. He speaks very broken English and spends a few months every year down in Mexico. And Jesse's the absolute coolest. Jesse and his wife uh, grab our kids' birthday gifts every year. They remember my kids' birthdays more often than I do. They get our kids' Christmas gifts. A couple times a year, he asked me to come crawl around in his attic and pull things down and move things around for him because in his words, his deadbeat son can't get up there and do it. I help Jesse decorate for Christmas and his wife makes us a killer cheesecake a couple times a year and it is fantastic. Now, it's not my preference nor is it easy for us to spend a lot of time with Jesse. Most of our conversations go like this, huh? What? And Jesse always wants to show me pictures and they're usually blurry and it takes him around five to 10 minutes to find a picture, like one picture at a time. And I'm like, come on, Jesse, we can get there. You want me, you want me to take that phone and find it for you? Um, but uh, that, that's just how it goes with him. And Katie and I have tried to discipline ourselves to spend a lot of time in Jesse's yard, a lot of times in Jesse's driveway and, and in his garage and in his, uh, hanging out with him. Why? Because God has called us to live right next door to Jesse and God, Jesus commands us, love your neighbor as yourself. So again, bloom where you're planted. Now that's the world's most easiest and sanitized example of laying down your preferences for the sake of others. But what does it look like for you? Because the truth is that the axiom goes, birds of a feather flock. So you know who you're naturally gonna spend time with and who you're naturally gonna like being around? People who share your political opinions. 
People who share your tax bracket, people who share your skin color, people who share your family upbringing and your family values. And Jesus has commanded us to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's all your neighbors, anyone you can meet. And he says, hey, don't just go hang out with people who share your preferences. Cross those aisles and get with people who are unlike you. Why? That you might gain a hearing of the gospel from them. In the words of J.D. Greer, Jesus is enough of a stumbling block on his own. You don't need to be. Jesus is enough of a stumbling block on his own. You don't need to be. So what do we do? Oftentimes we begin to condemn others in our minds, sometimes not verbally, in our hearts, we condemn others who have a differing view of how to educate kids, have a differing view of how to vote, have a differing view of what to do with their money. We condemn them and we refuse to enter relationship with them. Why? Because it's just easy for us to be around those who share our preferences. Friends, that's not the gospel. The gospel compels us to be with anyone and everyone. And thank God that's true because Jesus was our friend. Our mission trumps our preferences. What's the action here? We are others-centered. Our first attitude, man, we're self-denial. Our, our comforts can die in the face of serving others. And then second, we are others-centered, not looking to serve our own preferences and our own desires, but we go and seek to serve others. Let's keep moving here. Our mission trumps exclusivity. Our mission trumps exclusivity. Here's what I mean by that. There is one way to salvation. The Bible is clear on that. The way to salvation is exclusive. John 14, 6, Jesus is the way, truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through him. We are not universalist, friends. We don't believe everyone gets saved. It is only those who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus as their savior that will be called a child of God and a member of his kingdom. We are clear on the exclusivity of Christ. We must be. That is a gospel issue. But friends, our lives are not exclusive. Our lives are inclusive. Now, we live in a day and age where words don't matter, but words matter a lot to me. So let me define what I mean by inclusive. I don't mean affirming, okay? In the world around us, inclusive has become synonymous with affirming. That's just not true. That's not the definition of the word. Look it up. Inclusiveness is about being warm and welcoming and kind. Sounds a little bit like Jesus, am I right? Jesus says, come to my home and eat at my table regardless of your status. And I'm gonna come into your home and eat at your table regardless of your status, which again is why the fundamentalist Pharisees says he's a sinner just like those he's eating with. But here's the truth about inclusivity. A lot of times when we say it's about affirmation, you don't even affirm all of your own life choices. Romans chapter seven is in the Bible for a reason. Paul, the apostle says, I do the very thing I hate to do. That's called sin. And I hate the ways that I sin. I'm not fully affirming of every choice I make, but I'm pretty kind to myself. Why would I look outward and see someone who sins differently than me and say, I hate the choices you're making. Get out of my life. While the gospel is exclusive, Christians are inclusive. So let me give just a couple of examples how that might look in our culture, some hot button issues. As Christians, we are morally opposed and scripturally opposed, let's be clear on this, to the bending of gender and sexuality in our world. We just are, okay? The Bible is clear. Let us make man in our image, male and female, let us make them. There is male and female, there is no more than that. 
You don't get to choose. You don't get to change. It's assigned by God before eternity passed. However, however, Jesus loves those who struggle with this. Without nuance, we need to say that. Jesus loves those who are part of the LGBTQ community. And Jesus has not called us to sit there and spew hatred and bigotry. He has called us to welcome those into our home, to build relationship. Why? That we might gain a hearing of the gospel, friends. We know a savior who sets free. We know a savior who saves us from the bondage of sin. And here's the truth. Jesus saved me from my own perverse sexual sin. Jesus removed my own perverted sexual sin. He said the shame of that is removed. Just because someone sins differently than me, you think the grace of God doesn't apply to them? Kidding me? This makes me mad, friends. We have a reputation from those outside the Christian community of hating those outside the Christian community. Why? Why? We can be clear on what the scriptures say, and we are at Story Church, but our lives still say, hey, come eat with me. I want you to meet my Savior. He is good. As Christians, we are morally bound by the word of God to be absolutely pro-life. the very thought of dismembering a human in any form should make our blood boil. But listen, God loves that woman who had an abortion and God loves the guy who paid for it just as much as he loves you and me. And we have no idea the grief and the pain and the shame that those people might be walking in. So let us welcome people into our homes that they might meet a savior who comforts us in our grief, who soothes our pain, and who releases us from the shame. The scriptures are clear. We are to be clear where the scripture is and loving and welcoming. Democrat, Republican, good Lord. Religion is the politics of this day, friends. And every one of us bows at the altar of our political agenda in some way or another. Wealthy and poor, educated, uneducated, white, black, brown, we are not exclusive with our lives and our loves. Now, here's a good way for us to humble ourselves. As you look out at someone that's across the aisle from you, whatever it may be, whatever your issue is, all you need to do is look at that person and say, but for the grace of God, there go I. You are where you are, not because of some kind of moral superiority or perfection. The scriptures are clear that every one of us are dead in our sins and trespasses. We have rebelled from God. We have hated God with our lives. And in his loving kindness, he drew us to repentance and faith in him. And this sets us on solid ground, but it doesn't set us in such a place where we get to look down our noses at others. We get to love others because but for the grace of God, that's me, and that's you. Let us be known by our love, friends. And listen, if you're here in this room, and maybe you're in one of those categories I mentioned earlier, I just want you to know, like, you're, you're welcome here. We want you here. We want to know you and pray for you and 
have you in our homes and share life with you because Jesus loves you. Listen to this quote from Michael Green. Paul would not have tolerated the middle-class captivity of the church in the Western world. He would have been as active in evangelizing skinheads as he would have undergraduates. He would have been as much at home talking of Christ in the bar, brothel, and supper party. Ministries to the outcast, marginalized, unwed mothers, inner city kids, ethnic minorities, prisoners, prostitutes, HIV positive victims begin to implement the vision of all things to all people that Paul presents so challengingly. That's convicting for me. I hope it is for you too. So what's our action here? We are radically loving May the same stones that were thrown at Jesus, accusations of him identifying with sinners, be thrown at Story Church. I want that. Let me just help us start small here. There's a couple of things I really love about our church. And one of the things that I love about our church is that we have like strong fellowship here. We have really strong fellowship. We have a bunch of home groups that gather weekly. But in everything, there's a gold. There's also a shadow side. And here's the shadow side to really strong community. It means on Sunday morning, we become a magnet to each other. It means on Sunday morning, we circle up and we only hang out with those who are our friends because that's easy. And we miss the people who are outside the circle saying, I wanna be a part of that. I wanna belong. I wanna be loved by Jesus. I want a community of love and of laughter. It looks like they've got that. I wanna get in on that, but we're so blind to see that because all we see is our friends. Let me just, in a gentle rebuke church, say, be a missionary at church on Sundays. There are people here who wanna belong that feel like they don't and they're on the outside looking in. May it not be so. Let us be radically loving, which you think would be easy on a gathering. What time is it, 10? We're good? Still going? All right. I'm not going to stop then. Number, number four, our mission trumps our apathy. Our mission trumps our apathy. I'm going to get through the last two quickly. Paul is talking about a boxer and talking about a runner, how they run hard and they train hard and they live with discipline and with urgency. Why does Paul talk like that? Paul talks like that because again and again and again, he says, I have a desire to see people one to Jesus. Now, here's the truth. When you are one to something, you are first one away from something else. You cannot be one to Jesus without being one from something. And what is happening in salvation? In the work of salvation, you are saved to forgiveness of sins. You are saved to reconciliation of the Father. You are saved to eternity in the very presence of Jesus Christ. Those are all the things we're saved to. What does that mean we're saved from? means we're saved from captivity to sin. We are saved from the grips of Satan. We are saved from the world and the flesh that we so naturally live within. But more importantly than all of that, we are saved from the penalty of our sin. And the very penalty of our sin, the righteous penalty of our sin, is the due wrath of God. Condemnation and hell forever. That's what we are saved from and saved to Jesus. And Paul has this urgency in the middle of this because he knew that these people around him were heading to the wrath of God. And he says, listen, there's another way. There's a way to be saved from that and saved to Jesus. 
This is why Paul lived with such an urgency, because he wanted everyone everywhere to hear of Jesus. May Jesus be non-ignorable in Rancho Cucamonga. May Story Church and every true church in Rancho be faithful to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to anyone and everyone who has ears to hear. Would we proclaim with urgency and with zeal the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in our place that more people might be saved to him? So what's our attitude there? A godly zeal. A godly zeal. Are we living lives that are marked by zealousness? Or are we apathetic? Are we indifferent? Are we lazy with where God's called us? Final application point here. Our mission trumps our glory. Our mission trumps our glory. One of the keys of Paul's argument here about winning people to Jesus uh, is right in verse 23. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul wants to see people won to Jesus that more people might share in the blessings of the gospel. What are the blessings of the gospel? The ultimate blessing of the gospel is that one day our faith will turn to sight and we will fix our eyes upon the risen Christ and he will be exalted and worthy and holy and we will cry out forever of, of his holy name in worship and adoration of him. In essence, Paul says the end of why he's trying to win people to Jesus is that he will not get glory, but that God will get glory. In other places, when Paul is talking about fighting the fight or running the race, Paul says, I am fighting the fight so that one day I will lay hold of Jesus. That's in Philippians. Or, he fixed, or one day in Hebrews, he says, he will fix his eyes upon Jesus. In 1 Timothy, he will take hold of the faith. In running the race and in his own self-discipline and in Paul's desire to win people to Jesus, it's ultimately all about people seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. This is why we are on mission. Paul lays aside his own glory, his own pursuits, his own goals, his own desires that he might get more of Jesus now, more of Jesus for others, and more of Jesus for all of eternity. The mission is ultimately all about the glory of Jesus Christ that you get to share in and get to be a partaker in the gospel with those who you see one to Christ. So our final attitude here, we are god glorifying. Our main point for today was this. We, we do whatever it takes short of sin to reach everyone for Jesus. We do this on our mission by laying aside our own comfort, our own preferences, our own exclusivity, our own apathy, and our own glory. And let me remind you that the gospel teaches us that we have a savior who did whatever it takes, whatever it took to save us. In Luke chapter 15, we have three parables teaching of a shepherd who came to save us. There was a shepherd who had 99 sheep in the pen and one got away. And what did the shepherd do? He leapt out of that pen and chased down that, she that sheep. There's this story of a woman who had 10 pennies but lost one of those pennies and she turned her entire home over that she might grab that one penny that was lost. There's the story of the son who was lost and he returned home to a father with open and loving arms chasing after him. This is the scandalous picture of the gospel. Listen, here's the truth. 
If I have 99 sheep, I'm not leaving them to go chase one. 1% One attrition is fantastic in life. What's one penny when I have nine others? Yet we have a savior who left heaven's throne, who left all of the comfort of being in the presence of heaven and he put on flesh and he walked in deep self-denial in the muck and the mire that we dwell in. Why? That we might be exalted. He was self-denying and his mission trumped his comforts. We have a savior who for eternity could have just enjoyed the Trinity, the fellowship of Father, Son, and Spirit together in perfect unity. But he said, I'm coming. I'm coming. My own preferences of just being with Father, Son, and Spirit, man, I'm putting that aside that you can come join us and eat at my table. We have a savior who dwelt in the perfection and the bliss of heaven, but offered a way for a bunch of miserable outcasts like us to join his party. We have a savior who laid aside his own glory that we might be saved through his work on the cross. We have a savior who did whatever it took to save us. May we be like him and would his reputation sound forth from this place to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that through his life, death, and resurrection, we can have salvation now and forevermore. I pray we would today truly understand the, the truth of the gospel, that we were the sheep that ran away and wandered and Jesus was the shepherd that came and hunted us down and brought us home. And would we be like him? Would all obstacles that potentially alienate us from each other and from this world die in the name of seeing more people one to Jesus? Would we see our lives and our home and our money and our relationships as something to use for your glory and to draw people to you? Would we be zealous about your mission? Would we be zealous, zealous about sharing the news of a kind and loving savior? Would we lay aside our own political differences and preferences in order that we might build relationships with those who are different than us? And would you, God, Give us a harvest of souls. We are eager to see people one to you, not for our glory, but for your name's sake, that more and more knees might bow and tongues might confess that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.